Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers and I am Research and Policy Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As those of you who tune in regularly will know at this point, we release our podcasts in three different formats. We have our 10-minute lesson series where we take a particular piece of policy and aim to explain it, pick out the key topics in around like an 8 to 12 minutes. We also have our seminar series where we get the chance to listen back to presentations we've had at past events. And then we have our interview series where we chat to policy experts. But this week, it's one of those. I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Joyce from FLAC and Dr. Stuart Stamp from Manute as they discuss a series of papers that they have published called From Pillar to Post. These papers are looking at the over-indebtedness space in Ireland. They're looking at mortgage arrears, they're looking at unsecured debt, they're looking at the solutions that are currently available to people experiencing problem debt, the services that are in place and also making recommendations on how those services can be improved and what needs to change to bring about real solutions for people who are in difficulty with debt at the moment. We hope you enjoy. I want to begin, I suppose, by acknowledging just the huge body of work that's in these four papers and that there's no way we'll be getting down into the nitty gritties of the four papers because there's just so, so much in them. But I might ask Paul for what was behind writing these papers? Well, I suppose COVID was an influence and also the feeling that very slow progress was been still being made on resolving legacy debt, particularly around mortgage arrears, but increasingly also in the unsecured debt space. Unhappiness really about the central bank codes in terms of their, their balance slow numbers of solutions, the insolvency legislation, you know, becoming difficult to operate and been slowly reformed. So it was just general frustration reflected in the title, I suppose, pillar to post, you know, the ongoing struggle of people to get a solution in difficult financial circumstances. And then when COVID arrived, obviously that created huge amounts of of anxiety and worry for people. So that's what really sparked it. We started off with the first paper, just looking at people's perception of their position, um, looking at the welfare data, the increasing number of people claiming the pub payment, the sectors in which the pub payment was was highest and most frequent. And, you know, then we started looking at, uh, at payment breaks and that were been offered by the credit institutions to borrowers who were in in difficulty, and obviously then that that just sparked uh, you know a decision to go for broke and really um, look at the whole shooting gallery in terms of you know how effective are the debt resolution mechanisms, how effective are the support services to help people access those solutions. How is it working or not working? So it was just really, uh, I mean, we've been involved in a number of reports and Stuart has collaborated with with Flack on a number of reports over the years. We've always worked well together and we we just felt it was it was high time to review everything because uh, we're not getting any younger either. So we thought it was a good time to, you know, to have, I mean, it was an exhausting piece of work, to be honest. It just grew legs as these things do. There's so much in in each paper and there's no way we're going to get through them all. But just something that you've said there really resonated with me that your rights are really only rights if they can be realised. So a lot of people don't understand when they end up in this sort of over-indebted space, what options are available to them. That's really, really, really important that the supports are there. 
I mean, and then Stuart, then what you bring, I suppose, a different viewpoint to these papers. You're coming from more of an academic side of things. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I suppose for me, um, one, it was a great opportunity to work with Paul again, which, as he says, we've done. We've been doing this now for 30 years, really, at this stage, uh, on and off various pieces of work here and there. But I suppose for me, I think what characterises the over-indebtedness space and has done over the years is, is is we tend to take action. You know, we, we put in place a lot of initiatives as a society, you know, services and and so on. But I think by and large, we very rarely sit back and reflect and evaluate on actually how things look from the debtor's perspective, from the citizen's perspective. So that's really my interest, because our department in Maynooth is very much around human rights and social justice, the Department of Applied Social Studies. I suppose a big thing for me um, is this issue of well-being and the debtor's well-being, uh, or in fact, people's well-being in general. So I suppose when I'm working with Paul, what we tend to do is we tend to try and look at things from the household perspective, from the person's perspective. And I think a lot of the time over indebtedness, it's people look at it, and rightly so, as a finance issue, as an economic issue, sometimes as a business issue. Uh, but I think for Paul and I, it's much more of a well-being uh, issue and a human rights issue. Uh, and I think we bring that sort of perspective to it. So when Paul asked me would I be interested in being involved, I sort of said, absolutely, yes, please. And as he says, it started off as maybe a smaller project than we uh, than it finally became. But that, that's because there's so many dimensions to it. But I think what the thread that links the whole thing together uh, is really looking at it from the well-being and human rights perspective, from the household perspective. So that's why I was interested in it. And that's so important because, as you said, there's a difference between being in debt and being over-indebted. So there are two different spaces completely. And that over-indebted space, then all of the physical and mental, as you said, it's not just about finance, it's about the, the poor health outcomes that can be, um, that can be and, and are associated with it. And I think for me as well, it cuts right the way through the socioeconomic spectrum. I mean, my mantra has always been, you live within your means and then your means change. As you said, if you come at it from the debtor's perspective, that just opens up that conversation really widely. Where are we now in terms of the current over indebted situation we've still got as paul mentioned the legacy of that last crash plus covid so what did you find what's happening out there at the moment in terms of over indebtedness i might go back to you paul for this there's a perception obviously that during covid people saved money certain people did other people didn't um it rendered some people much more vulnerable especially people on low earnings and on low incomes and on welfare payments and and so on the data sources has been a huge problem for us. Uh, I think Stuart would agree. You know, th there's very little data in the unsecured debt space, but uh, I see that Silk has been, Silk fig figures have been published again, the survey on income and living conditions in, in uh, at the end of November. There's statistics, I suppose, nearly one in 10 households are having difficulty with the higher purchase or other unsecured loan payment uh, and that's a big worry. The mortgage arrears um, stats just seem to be very stationary. The last quarter of the central bank figures, it's a very small reduction in the number of, of accounts in arrears. What's really worrying is like there's about 46,000 family home mortgages in arrears. 
almost half of them are are deemed by the lender to be cooperating, but there's no restructure in place. And again, a significant number are in legal proceedings and in legal proceedings for for a long period of time. So there's there's a big stalemate there, I think, that needs to be unblocked. And we we've suggested in the final paper of Pillar to Post uh, setting up a mortgage arrears review office outside of the courts. The legal system isn't, I think, working for for, for anybody really. Um, and it's a desperate war of attrition for a lot of families, you know trying to hold on, repeatedly going into the county registrar's court, uh, working with MABs uh, as best they can in some cases, but not in all, you know, to make increased offers of, of payment. The effect that that has on on families, on children, on opportunities is, is, is really desperate. There's big worry, I think, um, with the cost of living crisis, as it's called, Obviously, prices have gone up. The situation with rents is absolutely chronic. Um, again, it's it's. I think the average rent across the country in private rented accommodation is about seventeen thousand euro a year now. So that's just leaving people under enormous pressure. We we don't know how many of 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 private renters have you know quite a range of of credit agreements, but. You know, it, it's likely that a lot of people have car loans, credit card agreements. And then you've the, all the new forms of credit, Suzanne, as you know, buy now, pay later, online platforms. And we just don't have enough data. I mean, you know, we, we've made the point to the central bank. Yeah, you publish figures on mortgages, family home mortgages in arrears. You don't publish any figures on unsecured debt. We don't, we don't actually know in terms of entities regulated by the central bank, how many of their credit agreements are in arrears at present. That figure, though, the recent silk figure, that one in 10 are, are having difficulty and are in arrears. Also, very other disturbing figure that out of those and their very recent figures, we didn't have them for Pillar to post the final paper. One in six single adult households have arrears on higher purchase or other loan repayments. So we need to be really proactive about this. I mean, and you know, we we've really approached this from a fairly simple kind of premise as well. You know, credit is part of a market economy. It's 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 baked into the system. If there wasn't lending, um, there wouldn't be comparable economic growth. Uh, and therefore, debt is a fact of life. Things will go pear-shaped for people. People will get sick. Relationships will break down. Businesses will fail. And it's it's quite a simple hypothesis. If you don't have a proper system to resolve this quickly and effectively, then then people are really been, been let down badly. You may indulge me. There was a piece that I read recently, which I just think sits really well into that. I have it marked here. Uh, it's from a book, Spatial Justice and the Irish Crisis. And it's from The End, which is a conversation between John Morrissey and David Harvey. And he's asking him about debt. Uh, and what he says, I mean, the role of debt is very important in stabilising accumulation. It's important to recognise that accumulation of capital is paralleled by an accumulation of debt. And if therefore you can't get rid of indebtedness and keep capital accumulation going. So there's a kind of relationship in the first instance. And then the question is, is how the debt is distributed. Is it state debt, corporate debt or personal debt? And what are the consequences of that? And what we've seen, of course, is if you like the privatisation of debt. So it goes away from the state, becomes personal debt. 
personal debt it eventually leads you to what you might call conditions of debt is it peonage i don't know if i'm pronouncing that right and then if you're in a condition of debt peonage then it's very difficult for populations to rise up unless part of the demand is that they're rising up is about the abolition of debt but the abolition of debt is a very very difficult challenge and to get that happen to get a debt jubilee so i just think it's like that kind of philosophy of debt almost that <laughs> and i am going off on a tangent here but that you know, if, if a nation is over indebted with personal debt, you will take on two jobs. You will work a job you hate. You will, you know, you will keep going because there is going to be no other way out of this. There's no solutions available where the bank or the state are actually going to take on, on any of it. So thank you for indulging me, that little side thing. I, I had it marked out just in case I'd be able to sneak it in somewhere. But it fits quite well into what you're saying there. Suzanne, sorry, just, just coming on the current situation, I think sometimes it's quite useful to look back as well. And recently we were sort of looking at this and, you know, over our, you know, respective 30 years, if you like, of trying to, you know, help and support people who are in trouble. Um, there's been sort of seven blocks, I think, or seven sort of different periods of time. Uh, you know, if you think about it, 30 years ago, it was very much, you know, a save. You don't borrow culture. Yeah. You can't afford it. You save up for it. And then we had the Celtic Tiger and we saw a credit expansion, credit boom, you know, a lot of new types of credit. Well, relatively new then, credit cards and so on. Then, of course, we had the crash followed by, or we had the bad, the sort of bad boom, if you will, which was the sort of, you know, new financial products, subprime and all the rest of it, further advances, the commodification of the family home and the financialization of society, I think, in the lead up to the crash in 2008. Then, of course, we had the credit crunch, you know, where there was very little or no credit available uh, for people. Uh, but we did see an increase in money lending during that period as traditional sources sort of began to dry up for people. Then as the crash sort of played out, if you will, uh, through the mid years of the 2013, 14, 15 of that particular decade, you know, we saw a bit of, a, you know, the economy starting to recover. Uh, we started to see growth again, you know, people starting to borrow again, things starting to get back towards where they were, house price uh, rise and so on. Um, then, of course, we had COVID, where, you know, things sort of ground to a halt in, in, in many ways, moratoria and so on. And now we've got, as Paul so rightly says, the cost of living crisis, where, in a sense, for many people, the issues now are about food on the table, you know, housing costs, utility costs. We know the issues. They're well uh, discussed at this stage. But I, 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 I often wonder, what have we learned from those previous seven ages, really, uh, and it seems to me that that's well, that's part of why I'm really interested in in the whole pillar to post series and being involved in it because what we were trying to do was to look back, not just saying this is where we are now, but we are where we are now because we've been where we've been, and we need to look back and reflect and learn from that and try and put in place a, a structure and a system uh, and an architecture for dealing with 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 debt, preventing it and dealing with it. Uh, that's much more person-centred and uh, human rights focused. I wonder though, is it because over-indebtedness is still, I think anyway, is still being framed as a as a personal failure as opposed to a systems failure? Is that maybe why the solutions aren't as... I think, I think that's, that's, that's an excellent point, Suzanne, and it's like poverty, isn't it? We've always had the deserving poor yeah. and the undeserving poor. You know, there's always been a culture of sort of certain people are at fault for the situation that they're in. 
And of course, you know, I think that's absolutely right. And if you think about the debate that took place after the global financial crisis, particularly around mortgage arrears and almost exclusively around mortgage arrears, around personal insolvency as well and unsecured debt to some degree, but we had terms like debt forgiveness being commonly used and, you know, in the unquestioned really. And to Paul and I, that the term debt forgiveness is a very loaded term because it implies blame. You know, one party was in the right and one party was in the wrong. And the party that's in the right is the one who forgives the party who was in the wrong. And of course, a lot of the credit that was extended, we now know, uh, was, I think the banking inquiry referred to it as imprudent lending. You know, so it's really, really unfair to put the burden solely or, 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 or mostly on the party who's least able to bear it, which is the debtor, um, particularly when, as you so rightly said before, so many people are in trouble because of external events, force majeure events, things that happen to people rather than things they actually do. So we need a system which recognises that and deals with people in a dignified way, I think. I might come back to Paul then for for those solutions, possibly, you know, what because when you touched on mortgages earlier on, like you can see from the central bank figures that the only... You said that the figures are coming down slowly, apart from those who've been in mortgage arrears for 10 years or more. So that cohort, the numbers are increasing. So you could kind of see, and again, increasing quite slowly, but as a proportion, they're taking up a larger proportion of those figures. So the solutions that are out there, if you've been in mortgage arrears since 2012, 2013, 2014, the odds are whatever solutions that are out there don't bring you any further forward. And I think as well, because again, my, my head is full of stuff, but just to go back to what you were saying about rent as well, that if you are in mortgage arrears and thought that you could surrender your home back or you could come to a deal and that you would have somewhere to live, mm. it might be easier. Yeah, well, I mean, you make a very important point there, which we we, we also make in, in particularly in the final paper, which is, you know, people wouldn't put themselves through the pain and misery of trying to negotiate with their lender, lenders, deal with the solicitor for the bank, go into court repeatedly to try and convince the county registrar that it's not timely yet to grant a possession order. That wouldn't be happening on, on such a wide scale if we didn't have such a chronic housing supply problem. So that's a really important context to all of this around the, the mortgage arrears situation anyway. I mean, if there were alternative sources of accommodation, I think a number of, of defendant borrowers, as they're called, would have just said, look, we've had enough of this. We just need to move on. But the problem is there isn't alternative accommodation for people to go to. And as things get worse and worse in the housing crisis and the refugee crisis, I mean, it looks even less likely, you know, that that housing supply will increase. So that's a, a really important context to to all of this. I think perhaps, I mean, the perception that people are responsible for their own debt problems, that that has probably altered a little arising out of the global financial crash. I think there is tacitly anyway in the central bank and other places a a recognition that there there was reckless lending and really that that, you know, was the main cause of the problem. What there hasn't been has been radical action. The state doesn't want homes to be repossessed 
doesn't want people to face court action in non-secured debt cases and so on, but doesn't want financial institutions to incur the losses uh, involved in write-down. And they're essentially, to us, I think, irreconcilable positions. And that's where the bullet has not been bitten and needs to be, is, you know, if 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 the debt is unpayable and and if the borrower is engaging and using the services that are available and being upfront, you know, there has to be uh, a more uh, proactive write-down process. And, and we've seen that with the evolution of the Personal Insolvency Act. It took absolutely ages to put in place. I mean, again, Stuart and I and others were calling for this at the turn of the millennium. Please, we need debt settlement legislation quick. We can see that the amount of credit going out there in the central bank figures, because there's, there's, there's plenty of figures for the amount of credit out there, not the amount of it that turns into debt. And it's kind of ironic that the Personal Insolvency Act was, was ultimately put in place because it was a condition of the IMF EU bailout. Uh, if we had had that, that legislation in place, it would have, for a start, it would have had an effect on the provision of reckless credit, because lenders would have seen there's a process where debt may be written down. You know, so it's caution. It's an abundance of caution all the time to make sure that the the financial system is not uh, undermined. And so then we get a personal insolvency act and we know it's too cautious and there's a creditor veto. And the Minister for Justice at the time says, no, there isn't a creditor veto. And a couple of years later, yeah, well, there is really a creditor veto. Let's amend that, but only in so far as it concerns personal insolvency arrangements incorporating a mortgage, you know, and then there's no right of appeal. Oh, let's introduce a right of appeal a few years later. But I mean, just to tie this up, I mean, there's supposed to have been a review of the Personal Insolvency Act conducted from around should have been started in towards the end of 2016 and should have been completed a year later it's beginning of 2023 and the review still hasn't taken place so you know processes are slow there's just an awful lot of conservatism and caution and that leads to a lot of households suffering undue pain uh, in relation to their financial situations i'm going to use a phrase that i find very triggering Moral hazard. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a bit like the debt forgiveness one, you know. Yeah. Like when does you know, when does participating in a market economy by borrowing money so that goods and services flow freely and and enterprises make profits, when does that turn into a moral hazard? For some people, it works. They can, you know, they can borrow. Earnings make a huge difference. Obviously, in a lot of situations, people are on low pay or in receipt of social welfare payments. There is a, a shortfall and and. In an economy with huge credit options and growing credit options, people are going to get into difficulties. So up to a certain point, you're participating in the market economy. Good for you. You're borrowing money. That means things get sold. That creates jobs, etc., etc. But if it tips over, oh, you've bitten off more than you can chew. And, you know, it's it's a moral hazard at, this, at that point to allow that debt to be written off. So it's yeah. a question of degree. 
that's the bit that fascinates me. As you said, the, the level of scrutiny that's applied to every aspect of your life once you go into mortgage arrears, that it's what? What's the standard financial statement? About 16, 17 pages? Oh, there's and a simplified you, one recently. Oh, okay, very good. That's <laughs> 10 pages. Yeah, like 12 or 14 or 12 so. 12 or 14 yeah. pages. But, you know, this, the conversation around strategic defaulters. So this narrative that you would actively take on debt with no intention of repaying it, an ability to repay it, but no intention to repay it. I don't think people understand the level of scrutiny that once you go into default, be it on your car, be it on your credit card, be it on um, your mortgage. As you said, there's a lot of hard work goes into being over indebted. There's a huge amount of engagement with your lender, whether you like it or not. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't, Suzanne. And I, I, I'd actually, you know, I that that phrase is hugely problematic. Uh, absolutely. So, from my experience, I mean, one of the things I've been doing, particularly over the last ten years, uh, a little more now, uh, is interviewing people who are in financial difficulty, and it never fails to strike me the moral pressure they put on themselves to try and keep up with things, to try and repay debts, and often go without things to try and do that so people put huge pressure on themselves people don't want to be in trouble you know this narrative as you say that there's this big number of people trying to game the system strategically default and all the rest of it there's no question that there will be some people in that situation i'm sure there will be but it's a tiny tiny minority the vast and the research is very solid on this the vast vast majority of people who are in difficulty you know, having huge problems, as we've discussed, with being in difficulty, it brings huge stress, it brings huge pressure, it brings huge embarrassment, sometimes shame, guilt, all the rest of it. Um, and, and people have are, are, are trying to manage life on a day-to-day basis and also deal with all of this. And it must be incredibly hurtful to people to hear it be that being discussed in that way as some sort of, you know, issue that people are trying to avoid and get out of, uh, you know, and game the system and all the rest of it. People want to pay the debts. They desperately try to pay the debts and they keep up uh, paying debts often well beyond the stage when they perhaps, you know, should be doing so because they've, you know, as I say, they're foregoing going without other things. So, you know, I think that, that, that phrase, a bit like debt forgiveness, a bit like strategic default, these terms, I think, really coloured and skewed the debate post-crash and I think it led to a, a sort of um, an approach to over-indebtedness which I think is overly harsh when maybe it should have been more generous uh, and, and, and recognising that people, the vast, vast majority of people are not in the situation uh, other than because they, they've been put there by circumstances largely beyond their control and they don't want to be in it and they want to get out of it as soon as possible. It's also... I mean, completely hypocritical in, in many instances, given the fact that the central bank and others completely failed to control the flow of credit and that people were allowed uh, or facilitated to borrow huge multiples uh, of their incomes to get on, on 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 a housing ladder where properties were completely overinflated and and are it's 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 even worse now is the difference now is you just can't get a mortgage because now there's standards and controls in place 
Um, so it's the opposite end of the stick. You know, it's almost like, you know, if you're consuming credit in a, in a, in a sort of a, a light or, you know, marginal way, you're a good citizen. But if it tips over, then suddenly it's your it's your fault. You know, there has to be a much greater balance here. I mean, obviously, we're never going to get away, certainly in 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 Europe, I think, from from credit being a phenomenon that that fuels an economy. I think we're stuck with that one way or another. But if that is the case, then we have to recognize that things will go wrong. For a lot of people, it's circumstances that change, relationships break up, people get sick, all the triggers that everybody involved in in money advice and debt counselling is aware of. And the, these are facts of life. And, and you deal with that as the price you pay for this. And, and if you if you don't have proper services for people to access to get assistance, and if you don't have proper resolution mechanisms that don't take a lifetime, then people will suffer and, and the system suffers. And, and of course, we never count the cost of this in terms of, of health care, uh, the psychological effect on people and on children and so on, and the missed opportunities for education and development. And, and none of this, it's very rarely factored into the conversation. And it would be interesting to to try to gauge that or assess it in some way. I'm not aware of, of any particular studies that have done that. We do know, though, for example, when when the boom turned to bust, I mean, the number of people, you know, visiting their GP and getting prescriptions to help with the distress and psychological damage of of constantly being in a battle to put food on the table and deal with your creditors. I mean, it's, um, you know, so it's insulting, really. I mean, you know, you get the odd person, obviously, who does try to game the system, but Stuart is right. They're, our experience, they're few and far between. And by the way, I mean, right through pillar to post, we don't stand over you know, people trying to gain the system. I mean, it from it's a really important part plank of what we're doing to say to people, look, get out there and engage with the services to help you, you know, try to find solutions, come forward, don't avoid the issue. Anyway, yeah, it's a very difficult place to be. I don't think people understand um, people who've never had financial problems. I mean, it's a very, very difficult place to be. You mentioned the personal insolvency legislation. So we have that in place since, as amended, I suppose we probably started to see solutions come through in about 2014, I think we would have seen, 2013, 2014, before the solutions actually started to, to come into, into existence. The bit that always fascinates me is why it was put out to the private market. So what you had prior to that was you went bankrupt, and that was done through the official assignee. And there was a fee, you went through the courts, that was all done. And then we created personal insolvency arrangements, which would have been your secured debt, primarily. You had a debt settlement arrangement, which was for unsecured debt. And when we say unsecured debt, we're talking about debt that doesn't have something linked to it that you can take back, I suppose that's the simplest way of putting it. And then with debt relief notices for, again, unsecured debt, low levels, so the low income, low low debt level debtor. But those solutions, the debt settlement arrangement and the personal insolvency arrangement were put out to the private market. So you have to pay thousands to a practitioner who are doing a great job. This is not a slight against any particular personal insolvency practitioner, 
but again, is that kind of part of that moral hazard conversation? I don't understand why somebody who's insolvent has to pay thousands in order to be able to engage in a debt solution. That makes no sense to me. I'm hoping somebody can explain to me why. No takers. <laughs> well, I mean, again, because we've been involved in this for a long, long time, free legal advice centres would have made very extensive submissions. I know because I wrote most of them. <laughs> in when the person's obviously bill was been booted, we we held a conference in 2012 with a, a number of international speakers who were experts in personal insolvency uh, across the world and Europe. And we would have made the point: why, why indeed has this been privatized? Creating the you know insolvency practitioners who are by and large accountants, uh, one or two lawyers, but they're they're mostly accountants. Why? Is the money advice and budgeting service not uh, been given a role in in being insolvency practitioners? And as you know, in 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 pillar to post and long before, I mean, we we've suggested, and I think Matt itself has suggested, you know, that there should be public personal insolvency practitioners, and that there's a there's a role for MABS, particularly in debt settlement arrangements, to to participate in the insolvency process. Why was it done? I think again, it's just this this perception that you need professionals to deal with this, and you know, accountants are suitably qualified and have the the, the expertise, and they're regulated by their professions, and and so on and so forth. Also, probably Stuart probably comment on this, but sort of following the model in the UK to to a fair extent as well, which we tend to do. We look across the water when you know to when it comes to introducing something we should have introduced long before. We look we look at the UK. We we often certainly with this we didn't look at at the broader European developments. I mean, I think this is a live issue, Suzanne, in the in the review of the Personal Insolvency Act, and and I think. There's a number of personal insolvency practitioners, but only a small number of them are actually active, I think, and have developed the expertise that's required to work a very difficult piece of legislation. So, I mean, I think there's definitely a space for MABs and personal insolvency practitioners to to work in tandem, which they have in Awalia to an extent. And as you say, I mean, some of the some of the efforts um, and some of the proposals are very imaginative in in, in quite a difficult uh, scheme, and there there's certainly lawyers involved in the the appeals who've become expert in you know tr- trying to find solutions. But but positive equity is a huge problem, as you know, for personal insolvency arrangements. So the the model needs to be really reviewed. Except we don't know what's going on in the review. <laughs> And um, it's still behind closed doors. It's funny when you mention looking to the UK and at the moment just how bad the situation is in the UK with IVAs and DROs and the implosion of companies, of private companies who are providing those solutions. So to quote Tony Fahey, we look to the UK, we watch, yeah, we, we look to the UK, I think we, we, we see what they do, we watch it fail and then we implement it, I think is how we put it. <laughs> That's one of his lines. I remember seeing him at a conference and that always stuck with me. But is, is that why, Stuart, that it was like the, the UK model? Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. I mean, the debt relief order in the UK, mm-hmm. we have a debt relief notice. 
you know, so that's very much modelled on it. Yes, the uh, the debt settlement arrangement is very much modelled on the individual voluntary arrangement, as you say, the IVA. Um, I, and, and of course, if you look at the evaluation, and there's, there's been evaluation work done on the IVA model in Britain, and, and by and large, it concludes something that uh, Paul's right. We, you know, we were sort of talking about maybe, you know, in, in the run-up and before even the, the enactment of the personal insolvency legislation, the big problem are the really large cohort of people who are in financial difficulty. They owe tens of thousands of pounds or euros. But because the circumstances have changed, they have very little or no disposable income. And and the research tells us that from from the UK, and I think our own um, inquiries are telling us the same thing. So you end up with this paradoxical situation where many people are actually too poor to become insolvent. They just don't have the money to pay an insolvency practitioner you know, to see an arrangement through, through through to the end. So, you know, that cohort of people who are, if you like, in that, you know, owing a lot of money, or maybe, you know, a reasonable, a particular lot of money given their own circumstances, but not having any resources after you deduct, you know, a minimum standard of living or a reasonable living expense uh, standard. Um, you know, they're completely stuck, you know, because they might have too much debt, to be able to avail, as you say, of the DRN and want to go down the bankruptcy route. You know, the privatised options, if you will, are not open to them. So they end up maybe back with MABS, trying to arrange some sort of voluntary uh, arrangement, which, as Paul's pointed out many times, is what the legislation was trying to get us away from, actually, you know, and to give people more certainty and so on. So so I I think it's not just looking at the UK models. I think we need to look more at the evaluation of those models. Because often they tell us, you know, that maybe they don't work as well as we, we may think they do, or at least they may work for people who are in certain situations, but they don't work for others. And just to close on it, I think one of the things um, we recommend, or one of the things we do recommend in, in Pillar to Post, which I think is quite useful here, is this idea of a zero payment plan. You know, you enter into some sort of plan, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you make any payments. But if your circumstances improve, then maybe, yes, you can contribute towards your debts. But, you know, we seem to have forgotten about that cohort of people. Um, and there are a lot of them, as, yeah. as you know, as well, in social justice Ireland. Yeah. yeah, I mean, a lot of the early systems in Europe, in Germany and Finland, the Nordic countries and so on, I mean, zero payment plan is an acknowledgement that a person is is has engaged, is in a programme, may be able to pay at some stage but but can't pay now and it's much more enlightened and and it also i mean in our system let's face it the person in mortgage arrears has better access to facilities um, than people with unsecure debt the awalia scheme uh, of uh, advice for people in in danger of of losing the family home and so on doesn't apply to people in rent arrears who might have um, arrears on personal loans and credit card agreements and, and overdrafts and so on and so forth. You can't get access for free to a personal insolvency practitioner unless you've got a mortgage in difficulty. And again, Stuart, myself, I never thought about this a lot, that you know the, the system since the crash really seems to focus on, on mortgage arrears, which is right and proper, but it shouldn't do so to the exclusion of people who are living in social housing or, or private rented accommodation. And perhaps just looking to the future, we don't have enough data, of course, as ever, but you know that's maybe the most vulnerable cohort now, because I mean, with the Central Bank of Ireland 
guidelines on mortgage lending, you can no longer get seven or eight times your your annual income. It's what's four times now from three and a half. So there's much more control. But with with rising rents, there's there are a huge number of people under pressure. A lot of people living in rent in private rental accommodation have credit agreements. And so in the reform of the Act, those people have to have access to insolvency services for free as well. Now there's a huge role for MABs to play here. And as you know, you know, MABs is the state-funded money advice and budgeting service, but it's not put on a statutory basis. It doesn't run its own operation. And and really that's one of the core recommendations from the final paper is that MABs needs to be put on statutory basis and it needs all the complementary expertises and services in its own under its own uh, watch uh, in addition to the the fundamental money advice debt counseling role you know research and and access to to legal advice and representation and so on so you know the the system needs to be fundamentally reviewed but there's no sign of that happening right now, it, it, it seems. Not that we're aware of. At least we're waiting for the Department of Justice review to see what it, um, what it says. But a lot of money has been spent on Awalia, and as Stuart very rightly said, and I, a lot of informal solutions. Yeah. When the whole idea was to get a formal, legally binding solution that you know you could rely upon not something that was a kind of voluntary arrangement between lender and borrower that could be reviewed to the borrower's detriment in the future. We might do a whistle-stop tour maybe of, of a couple of the recommendations. I know the the civil legal aid system is currently being reviewed at the moment, and that is a big key thing within that is access to legal representation for debt and for housing issues. Well, civil legal aid, I mean, again, it's an area of work in which VAC is, is hugely involved. We have a very limited scheme. It largely revolves around family law matters. A number of areas of, are excluded in the scheme. You can't get civil legal aid in relation to rights or disputes over land. So for private tenancies, legal aid is very difficult to obtain. In repossession cases, there's occasional representation, all right. I mean, there, there's some evidence that that some people make an application and do succeed in, in getting represented, but I think there it's pretty thin on the ground. From the perspective of the European Convention on Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms, the idea of being in a court on your own without legal representation when the roof over your head is at stake uh, it seems to be fundamentally unfair arguably might be considered to be a breach of the convention in in terms of due process and fair procedures. The problem, obviously, with all of this, though, is, you know, the demand for funding for a whole plethora of services right across the state uh, at present is, is huge. So the review of the civil legal aid scheme, yeah, it's good that it's happening, but, you know... It's hard to see widespread changes and, and huge in, injections of funding. Equally, you, you should, uh, in principle, be entitled to civil legal aid to defend an unsecured debt claim if you have a defence. But again, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't happen in practice either. So we've got a very limited scheme. Hopefully the review will lead to some, some positive changes. 
But, you know, from our experience in FLAC anyway, I mean, civil legal aid has never been something that has been a popular cause. Very difficult to get people interested in it. I think a lot of people think it's more, you know, more money for lawyers uh, as opposed to more rights for people to to defend their position. What else came out of the papers that you'd like to see changed? What are the recommendations are there? Well, one of the things I, I, I pick up on, the, Suzanne, um, is, is, you know, the whole structure that has evolved, the service structure, if you like, or infrastructure that has evolved for helping people who are already in trouble. And one of the recommendations we we make, and as, as Paul says, it's really centred on maps. We think it can be very confusing for people at the moment uh, because of the incremental nature of service uh, development. And that's not to, to say that, you know, the services, you know, obviously it provides a very important service for many people, as we know, but it can be quite complicated to navigate them. And in Pillar to Post 4, uh, we have a diagram which tries to depict, you know, that uh, sort of quite quite confusing sort of incremental service structure that's developed. And, you know, if you turn on the radio, you know, you might hear an advert for MABS. You know, you, you, you turn on the television, you see an advert for the uh, the Insolvency Service of Ireland. You, you, you go to catch a bus and you see on the bus shelter, talk to a while you, you know, and I think if you try and put yourself in the yeah. situation of somebody who's in trouble and having difficulty thinking straight often because of that, where do you go? How do these things knit together? So I think that's a very important thing we need to do is to really tighten up that infrastructure. And our recommendation is that MABS should very, very much be the hub of that particular wheel. They've shown that increased levels of anxiety, increased levels of stress, impact on your ability to think straight, impact on your ability to make decisions. So as you said, an understanding of the message should really simply be, you know, okay, things aren't going according to plan, give us a win. You know, something as simple as that. Absolutely. And and we all, one of the other things we talk about more in the earlier papers, actually, you know, when we look at the data and around poverty and deprivation and, and, and all the rest of it, you know, if you have a heavily service-focused architecture, that says to us that, you know, you almost have to be in trouble before the service comes into play. You know, and, and and one of our, again, a thread running through the papers is, you know, we need to prevent over-indebtedness much, much better than we're doing, I think. And there's a, you know, a range of ways we, we need to do that at the institutional level, of course, around access to credit and, and all of that. At the personal level around money management and financial education. At the structural level, you know, we need to make sure people have enough money to live on, we need to make sure people have enough resilience, they have enough savings, assets and so on to draw upon when they need it. And we need to make sure that, you know, public services are much more universal, you know, that people can access services that they need rather than having to borrow money, you know, to pay, if you like, for, for, for some of those services. So, you know, there's a whole preventative sort of area here, I think. We talk quite a lot about intervening earlier. You know, we need to be much more able to pick up problems at the very early or incipient stage, rather than you know, almost allowing them to develop. And the problem with the service model is that we know from the research that for many people, because of you know the, the things we talked about, the stigma, the embarrassment, the shame, the guilt, and all the rest of it, you know, people try and hide it, they try and manage, they try and keep going. And of course, that can just bottle things up more and more and more. So that when people finally take the very brave step of picking up the phone to call MABS or stepping across the threshold of an office or, you know, ringing the insolvency service or whatever it is, 
by that stage, the problems are so much greater and they're so much more difficult to resolve. So I think we really need to look at how we can detect problems happening a lot earlier and if at all possible to prevent them happening in the first place. Yeah, I mean, just just to add to that, I mean, you know, there's a number of codes, central bank codes, the Code of Conduct on Mortgage Arrears that deals with, you know, puts an infrastructure in place for, for dealing with the mortgage arrears problem. Then you've the Consumer Protection Code, Chapter 8 of that, which deals with, you know, having an arrears mechanism with unse- certain unsecured uh, agreements and not others. You've got the utility arrears problem. You've got the rent arrears problem. Uh, you know, there's, there's a number of disparate elements or bits and pieces of mechanisms to address individual debts. Uh, Stuart is suggesting when, when people start to get into trouble, it's really important that that's dealt with comprehensively and quickly and that people understand what the processes are. You know, so we're suggesting there, for example, that a revised code, you know, covering all debt should be put in place. Now, of course, that's going to be difficult to put in place because the central bank will say, well, we only regulate certain lenders and we don't regulate utility providers and, and so on and so forth. The other element of those codes is they're imbalanced. The lender decides what kind of uh, alternative arrangement uh, for payment will be put in place. If you're not happy with what you've been offered in terms of, a, a, of an alternative repayment arrangement, you've no right of appeal. Again, it's 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 very imbalanced, uh, and people fall out of that quite quickly. And you know, the central bank itself has acknowledged this that in the the years early years of the the code of conduct on mortgage arrears, two thousand thirteen, uh, particularly, a lot of people were put on interest only arrangements. These were just um, they weren't even fixes; they were just like allowing things to rumble along. So you know, decisively deal with the problem, recognize inability to pay, and and deal with it in a proportionate way where the debtor has rights and and can vindicate those rights. If you become insolvent, then the person you know the personal insolvency legislation then needs to be you know have a lot more services associated with it. And it needs to be dynamic. We're too slow to change it, far too slow. I mean, it was apparent that there were problems with the lack of a review process. It took till 2015 for that to change. And then you had to have been in arrears from the 1st of January 2016 to access the process. And that wasn't changed till 2021. You know, it's just very cautious and that leads to people not only getting confused but also being shortchanged in terms of a very difficult situation. I think one of the things that struck us over the last 30 years and I had experience in the UK before this as well is that one of the things we don't do nearly enough of is we don't talk to people about how they find the systems and the services and the you know the measures that are put in place we do really really very little of that so the voice of the in arguably the most important person in all of this who's the person who's in difficulty is really heard in terms of policy development we need to be much more proactive and creative about asking people well what do you think what would work for you you went through this process how did you find it is there anything you'd change Paul and I were involved in a review of the debt relief notice, personal insolvency uh, solution. And and speaking to people was so enlightening, you know, and they spoke about their, uh, you know, their experiences, how they got into this situation. And crucially, they told us that actually they'd never heard 
of the debt relief notice until they went to MABS and it was explained to them. And it then, you know, became something that was in the consciousness and they could actually think about. So we tend to focus very much, I think, on throughputs. You know, we read an awful lot of statistics, how many people use a particular service or engage with a particular body. We, we do very little on impacts. Okay, what did that engagement result in for you? How did it work out? Is there anything you can tell us that would help us yeah. change things and make it better for people who may hit difficulty in the future? So I think that is a huge message that we need to try and to help there, that we need, you know, to everybody, all of us, we need to, to find out, you know, what people think of these different measures and, and services. Are they improvements or, or, or not? We, we really need to know. And in my view, and I think in Paul's view, the best people to tell us are the people who are the end users, if you will, of these particular services and, and structures. So that, that, that that's sort of like a plea from my point of view. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a, a really interesting example of that is, is the payment breaks um, that were offered in 2021. The third paper in Pillar to Post looks at payment breaks. Not enough time to get into it now, but the Central Bank of Ireland produced quite a large amount of material, a number of different reports on payment breaks, their nature and 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 who availed of them and so on and so forth. Not a single consumer was spoken to in, in the course of this research. In contrast, in the UK, outfits like the Money Advice Trust, um, Step Change and so on, you know, have pretty quickly engaged in research and spoke to to people who are the subject of payment breaks about their experience you know and more of an engagement there and it's it's a symptom across the the system that the regulators don't seem to talk to consumers about their experience you know there's there's a rich vein of information there to improve services and if you consult with the people who are the most affected by things like mab should really be at the center of this and it should have the complementary services, insolvency services, practitioners, uh, legal aid and so on revolving around it. And, and that's an important part of the future is that their money advice services are promoted, but that there's a, all the complementary services are there to, to assist people get ultimate solutions to their problems. I think that's a really key point and I won't labour it because again I know what we're we're really we're pushing our, <laughs> our time limits here. But that is a really key point though that I suppose organizations are always interested in things like KPIs and, and quantitative data. So how many clients have we had? How many clients have we processed? How many of those had mortgages? And that's easy to put into a report. And then you can say, well, we had X amount of clients more this year than we did last year. And I've always felt that that doesn't really reflect, as you said, the experience of it. So you may have a client who comes to you with mortgage arrears. They may end up having their home repossessed at the end. Was that a failure or a success if that client was supported at every stage of the process? If every aspect and every avenue was explored for that client at every stage of the process, was that a successful case or an unsuccessful case? And I've often thought, as you said, the numbers alone would say immediately that was an unsuccessful case. They came in, they lost their home, whereas that client was supported right the way through the process, which they wouldn't have had had they not engaged with the service. So it sometimes it can be about the definitions of, of who's this service for? Is it for whoever in a department somewhere has to read statistics and fund it? Or is it for the person who comes in through the front door? As Stuart regularly says, the polluter should also pay... <laughs> 
um, there is a need for much more widespread services and they have to be funded from somewhere and they don't necessarily have to be exclusively funded from the, the, the public exchequer credit institutions that lend money and things go pear-shaped have some responsibility also for, for funding the services involved. And that's something that we haven't done in Ireland. I mean, you know, people are critical of MABS uh, from time to time and it, it, it's understandable. But part of the problem is that MABS doesn't have the protection around it and obviously isn't on a statutory basis itself. It, it has kind of sporadic access access to to other services we're stuck with consumer debt it's we're stuck with consumer credit and therefore we're stuck with consumer debt so we need to grow up really and and put in place a a comprehensive system to resolve the problem quickly that requires money so i I just one thing just again it it comes back to this human rights approach that we're advocating which there's it if 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 we have a service-based sort of structure for assisting people you know, those services will learn an awful lot from the people they engage with about where the faults are, not just in the the system in relation to maybe debt, but in relation to income support and all the rest of it and, and, and ancillary services and, you know, public services maybe in general. So, you know, we can learn an awful lot from that sort of service type approach. But I don't think we channel that information that, that that's gathered well enough or quickly enough in order to ensure that action is taken so that we don't keep repeating sort of the same mistakes. So I think there's a huge piece of work to be done, I think, in actually joining up all these different parts of of the indebtedness and over-indebtedness landscape that we look at in Pillar to Post and harnessing the learning from those disparate parts to make sure that the system works for everybody. And, you know, we, we, we can do that because the information is there. I mean, people using services every day, I often refer to MABS as the canary in the coal mine because they pick up issues straight away. You know, somebody comes in and you, all of a sudden you discover buy now, pay later is becoming an issue and so on. You know, you you, you look at, um, you know, warnings that, that, that MABS were issuing in the 06, 07 period where they could see that people were starting to get in hugely, you know, over their heads in terms of the amount of debt that was being extended to them. So so I think that is an area just to join up the 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 information that we gather from services in order to make sure that our policy and our evidence base, sorry, our policy is based much more on evidence and experience rather than, if you like, what we think we know about people, because that may not always be correct. I mean, the other thing is, just as struck me when Stuart was speaking there, I mean, aside from not talking to consumers, regulatory authorities don't talk to advocates either much. So you get a polite listening. Oh, that's very good. That's very interesting. Yeah, that's, that's, that's yeah, yeah, there's a lot in that. <laughs> 78 pages. <laughs> but, but. You know, you don't, you rarely get the kind of engagement, you know. So, for example, the the review of the Personal Insolvency Act, I mean, um, taking place, you know, within the Department of Justice, I I don't think they've consulted with anybody yet. There should be a review group. There should be a discussion. The the various different people involved in in the area should get a chance to to discuss what, what needs to happen. You know, in in Pillar to Post, we do an analysis, the last paper of the debt for equity issue and and the problems of positive equity in terms of getting a personal insolvency arrangement in place. And I mean, there's there's three decisions reviewed, the Fennel, the Lowe and the McAvoy cases. 
And, you know, in each of those cases, the high court, a high court judge specifically said more or less, uh, sorry, we can't go there as the legislation is currently set out. And so I can't overturn the refusal of the proposal. But I'm going to say in passing that maybe a debate needs to take place between the various stakeholders as to whether, and this is particularly in the context of ageing borrowers with mortgage arrears and saying, well, uh, the great split mortgage project has failed a lot of people because, okay, you, you get to the end of the first part and then you face the warehouse and you're 55 or 60 years old and you still owe 150 grand. What? personal insolvency practitioners and they're kind of proposing can we can we have debt for equity instead of um, split mortgages so that beyond you know that may go beyond your lifetime and it gets mopped up from your estate and so on and that's that's a big issue in the review of the act but uh, you know I don't know what they're going to do with it but there should be a discussion about this amongst the stakeholders already I mean, the central bank itself at the end of 2021 identified 95,000 to 100,000 mortgages that were facing a serious payment shortfall at the end of the term. Uh, and a number of those were already restructured. So probably they were the subject of, of split mortgages. You know, so so that's a accident waiting to happen uh, for a lot of people. And, you know, it's kind of curious. We said it in Pillar to Post as well, particularly in the last paper. I mean, you have these kind of warnings and calls from the Central Bank of Ireland, you know, just just we're identifying this and we're saying it publicly. This is a danger and so on and so forth. But what what we don't see is them saying, okay, so action needs to be taken here. We need to get people together and so on. So it's interesting that you see high court judges saying, you know, in litigation, okay, we see the two different sides of the the argument here, but this is clearly a problem. So maybe it would be a good idea for a, a widespread discussion to take place about how this might be managed. Unfortunately, I can't sanction this personal insolvency arrangement as the legislation currently stands. The only way that I think most of those cases can be resolved is either repossession or debt for equity, because... Mm-hmm. There's no payment capacity. People aren't working. And again, it goes back to that whole thing of you're too broke to go broke, which I simply cannot get my head. Yeah, I mean, there there needs to be, I think, more listening to people who, yeah. who have experience of, of, of dealing with the mechanisms, you know. On the margins, I think we talked mm-hmm. a bit about that. It's the marginalised groups, isn't it, that... You know, like Silk recently was talking about lone parents, you know, yes. one in four lone parents, uh, I think, are in arrears. I've got it down here. Um, or reports of arrears in Silk with the utility bill. It was about one in, it's like 20 to 23, 25% with yeah. HP rent um, or housing costs and um, utilities. So we covered that all right, didn't we? Because I think that, that, that yeah. that's from a social justice island point of view. It's the marginalised, the people who are marginalised before COVID, they're still marginalised now. Um, and the problems ain't getting better. So yeah, yeah. Just, just on that, Stuart, I mean, we didn't have, as in Pillar to Post, we lamented that the CRU had not produced any figures um, since since 2021 on utility accounts in arrears, but they have recently, just after we, <laughs> just Ooh. after Pillar to Post was 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 published. What, what do they say? Well, interesting. I, I have written them down here. So I, I kind of took it as at the beginning of COVID. So 12% of domestic electricity accounts were in arrears at the end of 2019. It's now at the end of Q2 2022. So the end of June, it was 10%. So a decrease. 
But interestingly, and this is quite disturbing, 14% of gas, domestic gas accounts were in arrears at the end of 2019. The end of June 2022, it's 20%. Yeah. So one in five domestic gas accounts is, is in arrears. You're and, going to risk getting your gas cut off quicker than you're going to risk getting your lucky cut off. Yeah. Well, there's all, that's also on that, Suzanne, disconnections are actually increasing mm-hmm. this year uh, compared to, to 2021. So, you know, there's a lot of straws in the wind there as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a huge amount of material here that forms the overall picture. But they hadn't produced any figures since 2021. April 2021, there was nothing. And then suddenly... That sounds like a result to me. Oh, yeah, they were implementing our recommendation. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll, it take, we'll take that as a win. Take anything, that as a win. Take anything we can. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say thank you very, very much to you both for your time and your expertise. And thank, thanks to you, Suzanne, for giving us the opportunity. It's a great, uh, it's a great series, and it's 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 great to have the the op- opportunity to try and explain what that this has been about. Yeah, thanks, Suzanne. Thanks a million. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions on future episodes, please feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie. Until next time, stay safe.